welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn, your Sunday news hour. Uh, my name is Emily, and I am here with my co-host, Jasmine. It is September 11th. Is it the 21st anniversary this year of yeah. uh, September 11th attacks? Yeah. How are you doing? Pretty well. I'm just taking it easy. I think we we considered doing like a theme, but it was a little bit difficult to yeah. make that work. But, you know, we wanted to acknowledge the anniversary. Like, I still remember where I was when... Mm-hmm. Um, the news hit and it was really uh, for those of us who are old enough to remember what it was like it's definitely like a one of those things in history where you know for us in the U.S. well unfortunately in many places like life has changed drastically um, since that day so yeah I remember talking to my mom you know I remember freaking out during COVID about like wow like everything's gonna be different now and she was like yeah like sometimes that happens and she was she was telling me, you know, flying before 9-11 was a totally different experience. You know, like the security situation now, it was nothing like that beforehand. Like having to take off your shoes and have, you know, you could bring whatever liquids you wanted, you know, and we've all right. just, the world sort of shifts sometimes in ways that you forget about. Even like with the Patriot Act and like things that oh, were yeah. okayed and like allowed to happen that have changed like our right to privacy. Yeah. Um, obviously, like the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's like when you're a child, I wasn't fully connecting the dots on any mm-hmm. of those things. But now with hindsight, like you can see like, wow, like that event kicked off so many, so much like really bad shit in addition mm-hmm. to just, you know, the victims of the initial attack itself, which is obviously terrible and sad. But then like what's been the death toll like globally? Yeah. as a result of that or yeah and um one another thing we're not going to talk about in from the stories we picked out is that the queen died i have a lot of british friends and it's been weird for them it's it's weird for me in the sense where it's like this is like a head of state that's been around for the whole lives of most of the people living i feel like you know around the world and that's a strange thing i know there's a lot of you know a lot of mixed sentiments about you know monarchies are like so like old time you know it's like weird that that's still a thing even um from that sense but yeah yeah the queen is dead yeah should we dive into the stories yes we should all right um we're going to be talking about the water crisis in jackson mississippi the zero covid policy that china is still holding on to and much, much more. Um, and up first, I actually am going to uh, start off with our local New York City-based story. Uh, so this story comes from a September 2nd New York Times article by Tom Mashberg and Graham Bowley titled, Investigators Citing Looting Have Seized 27 Antiquities from the Met. The museum said it is cooperating with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, which has executed several search warrants at the museum since February. The article explains, quote, Investigators in New York have seized 27 ancient artifacts valued at more than $13 million from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, asserting that the objects acquired to showcase the glories of ancient Rome, Greece, and Egypt had all been looted. Some of the items passed through the hands of people long suspected to have trafficked antiquities, such as Gianfranco Bacchina, 
who ran an, a gallery in Switzerland for decades before being investigated for illegal dealings by the Italian government in 2001. But most of the items had entered the Met's collection long before Bikina was publicly accused of illicit activity. The items, seized under the terms of three separate search warrants executed during the last six months, will be returned to their countries of origin, 21 to Italy and 6 to Egypt, in ceremonies scheduled for next week. The events are part of a push by law enforcement officials to hasten the pace of repatriations that in the past often dragged on for a year or more, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office said. The confiscations also highlight heightened law enforcement efforts against the illegal sale of ancient relics, whose thefts are increasingly being traced to looting gangs and dealers from South Asia to the Mediterranean. The authorities have warned that many more objects with illicit origins remain in the hands of private collectors and museums. Eight of the items seized from the Met by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office working in conjunction with federal officials were acquired directly from Bikina, uh, the district attorney's office said. Bikina has been convicted of receiving stolen antiquities by Greece. In Italy, after a decade-long investigation, a hoard of uh, 6,300 Greco-Roman artifacts was confiscated from him in 2011 when a judge determined the items had been looted uh, dating back to the early 1970s. But the criminal charges there were dismissed on statute of limitation grounds. Although the Met acquired many of the Bikina items long before he was implicated in looting, one expert on antiquities trafficking said that once Bikina came under suspicion, the Met should have reviewed the provenance of any items purchased from his gallery Antique Kunst Palladion in Basel, Switzerland. The Met said in a statement that information on the Italian objects had only recently been made available to the museum by the district attorney's investigators, that it has been fully cooperative, and that its acquisition reviews have become more rigorous in the decades since the items came into its collection. Uh, quote, one of the most notable items confiscated from the Met was a terracotta kylix or drinking cup from 470 BC and valued at $1.2 million. It was bought directly from the Bikina Gallery in 1979. Another item, a terracotta statuette of a Greek uh, goddess from about 400 BC and valued at $400,000, was a 2000 gift from Robin Symes, a British antiquities dealer. Symes was involved in the sale of a giant statue of Aphrodite that the Getty Museum bought in 1988 for a reported $18 million and agreed uh, to return it to Italy in 2007. Quote, separately, investigators said, a seizure warrant was issued on Tuesday for another Met item. A 6th century stone sculpture depicting a Hindu mother goddess, or a matrika, acquired in 1993. Officials did not disclose the reason for the confiscation. The Manhattan District Attorney, Evan L. Bragg, Alvin L. Bragg, said that given the work of his antiquities unit, which he said has been responsible for the repatriation of some 2,000 artifacts, it should be no secret to museums, collectors, and auction houses that some of the pieces they hold may have been looted by organized traffickers. The investigations conducted by my office have clearly exposed these networks, he said in a statement, and put into the public domain a wealth of information the art world can proactively use to return antiquities to where they rightfully belong. The seized Egyptian objects include painted linen fragments and a portrait of a woman on a panel, lady with a blue mantle, valued at more than $1.2 million. 
Prosecutors with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office said five of the Egyptian artifacts uh, were supplied by the same network of looters that had provided the Met with a golden sheathed coffin from the first century B.C. that the museum agreed to return in 2019. In the case of the coffin, museum officials had said that they bought it from an art dealer in Paris in 2017 for nearly $4 million and were misled by a phony account of its provenance that made it appear as if the coffin had been legitimately exported decades earlier. The museum said that it learned from investigators that some of the Egyptian objects it had bought were sold using false ownership histories, fraudulent statements, and fake documents from the same network that sold the Met the Gilded Coffin. The Met is also being pressed by the Cambodian government for the return of Khmer artifacts that it says were looted from remote jungle temple sites during the tumult of its civil war and subsequent years of upheaval. Derek Fincham, a professor and expert in cultural property from the South Texas College of Law in Houston, said the Met should have done more to review the origins of the artifacts before being prompted into action by a law enforcement inquiry. Uh, the best institutions treat their collections as a part of the public trust and seriously research the history and acquisition of their collection, he said. And I am going to leave it at that. Uh, I thought this was a pretty interesting story. We've talked about, I feel like we've talked about museums a little bit on the show here and there. I don't know if we've done stories about repatriation or if we have. It's been a long, long time. Um, I feel like we may have done one about, and it was um, something having to do with Greek artifacts. Mm. Like there were some like ruins or something that mm -hmm. they wanted to get, like the Elgin marbles, I think it was. Ooh, but that, that was a long time ago. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it's one of those things that I think it's, it's often with British jokes. I think the, I hear a lot of jokes about how the British museum or like, the Brits are like the best thieves, but a lot of big museums around the world and in the West in particular, you know, they have all these collections from all these cultures around the world. And it's just, it feels very unlikely that they've acquired, you know, that they've bought those things from the governments fairly in all cases, you know, <laughs> um, it feels very unlikely. Uh, and, you know, just the looting of wealth from oh, around yeah. the world, you know. Yeah. It's definitely most, I would say the majority of the stuff that you're getting, if it's coming from other people's cultures, yeah. like in countries, especially with, you know, these institutions being so old, yep. a lot of it, you know, started during the colonial era, you know, like there was a news story not long ago about, I don't want to get the country wrong, but they were West African um, activists that went into the Musée du Quai Branly in Paris. And they just straight up took some of the stuff back. They were like, mm. you stole this. You know, Ooh. and it was on video and everything. And I'm like, you know Ooh. what? They're damn right. Um, wow. That's bold. Especially yeah. like when you know the, the way that a lot of these things were acquired. You know, a lot of violence, mm -hmm. a lot of coercion, you know, lying, mm. cheating. Like from what this story seems to say, you know, people are, you know, profiting off of lying about where they get things and mm -hmm. it's, it's messed up mm -hmm. are yeah. you a big museum person like do you enjoy going to them I do I do I uh I enjoy going for about an hour and I think that's you know and then it suddenly and then everything starts to blur together and I sort of stop being able to absorb information maybe an hour and a half you know and then I'll I like I like a cat good a good museum gift shop right <laughs> 
<laughs> and then I'm sort of out. Um, yeah, I like museums as much as I can absorb them. Um, and and these days, I mean, there's a lot of really interesting. Is it political? Is that the right word? Questions about the stuff you're looking at, right? Like if it's not from or the like country ethical questions. Ethical, yeah, I think that's right. Ethical questions about the stuff you're looking at, and um, especially if it's not from the culture or the country, uh, country or culture at the museum, you know, and how th- those things are framed. And a lot of that stuff has changed too. I think a lot of, um, you know, these days you don't really see like exotic exotification. Is that the right word for like you know, like the way National Geographic used to pose, like have all these really crazy. Uh, ex, you know, stories about um, like tribes and have these, you know, like really salacious sort of photos. Try and in about of, like kind of uh, like sensationalized, yeah, like, and like you know, topless women. Or, it's like yeah. wow, like look how like they're like you know savages or whatever, you know, like stuff like right. that. It's, it's like human zoos and stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. Good, but it's, it's like the afterlife of that, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Right, and still like having like you know, in New York city, having an entire Egyptian collection, you know, it's like this whole, you know, it's like, where did this come from? (laughs) Did you, did you buy this from the government? Are they, are they benefiting from you displaying it here? Probably not. And is that okay? Probably not, you know? And, um, I mean, it's, it's good to see that, in New York that they're, they're doing it quickly. Like I know it is right. I feel like that these things usually take like a year, if not years to rectify or like it's caught in legal court battles forever. Um, it's cool that New York is like, all right, they're, they're leaving next week. Say bye-bye. Um, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. And there's, I mean, there's sure enough stuff in there that had, that was acquired legitimately. There's enough, you know, like contemporary art. Yeah. you know, people are happy to have it displayed. You know, I yes, I enjoy. Yeah. I can spend a day in the Met with the best of them, a day and a night. I like a lot of the stuff that is there. Like, I really enjoy um, there and Brooklyn Museum when they do mm-hmm. like their fashion mm-hmm. thing. Oh like, yeah, I love the fashion there. exhibits. Yeah, like the Alexander McQueen, like that mm-hmm. was great. And also, yeah. there was right before COVID became like shut everything down. I went to the Met and they had this really great exhibit and it was a temporary exhibit and it was about the kingdoms of Mali. And I went you, to that one too. I loved it. It was so, yeah. you know, it's like you, I learned so much. And when you looked at everything, like the provenance of it, it's like, these things are on loan from yeah. Mali. Yeah. They're going and, back. Yeah. And yeah. There definitely. Like recordings and things that where you could hear like griots singing, like it was super informative and it was good to know like this. And they were like, these things are part of like the education of children, like in mm-hmm. Maui, like they learn these histories. Yeah. And I felt like, yeah, that's, that's the way to do it. But you can't yeah. just take people shit and have it forever and think it's not gonna be, be an issue. issue. Like, yeah, when you said night at the uh, night, well, night at the museum, the movie, but then um, the mixed up files is a Mrs. Basilie Frankweiler is one of my favorite. Did you ever read that, Jasmine? No. What is that? Oh, so it's like it's from the '60s, I think. It's a it's like a YA book about two kids who two siblings who run away from home and camp out at the Met Museum of Art in New York City at night, and um, 
they like sleep in the bed, the medieval times beds and they like shower in the fountain. And I mean, there's stuff that's like, I had to learn what an automat was, right? Like they get coins from the fountain or whatever and put it in the automat and that's how they eat at night. It's just, it's one of my favorites. If So I like museums like as like a, I don't, an environment like that for sure. Yeah. Cool, yeah. Yeah. All right. All righty. I think we have come to the end of our local portion of the show for today. Uh, we are going to go into our first musical break and I picked out a song that I've just been listening to a lot lately. I don't think it's connected to the story thematically that much, but it's a good one. And it is called one that suits me by hop along. We will be right back. Me. Can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule again no spaces no punctuation marks welcome back to objection to the rule on radio free brooklyn uh we now have the national news section of the show and i'm gonna send it to jasmine take it away okay so this is um a story that's been unfolding for quite some time unfortunately uh this information comes from the mississippi free press um, and, you know, just because it is a very deep investigation into what's happening in Jackson, Mississippi, I'm not going to read everything. I did cut out quite a few of like quotes, for example, uh, but I encourage you to read the full thing as always, if you can. The title of the article is A Can Kicked Down the Road, Water Crisis Strains Daily Life in Capital City, written by Coyote Crown. And it was it came out on September the 1st. Willie Hart, 72, has been warning about the capital city's water system since he was as young as his 30-year-old son. They need to do something about that water before it gets bad, Kendrick Hart said, speaking with a deeper tone as he quoted his father's recollection of his own words from four decades ago. Now, the crisis the elder Hart foretold is undeniable. Despite city leaders spending years attempting to plug holes in the aged water system, a series of catastrophic failures has left 180,000 people in Mississippi's 83% Black capital city with no access to safe running water. For the longest, I have been experiencing dirty water, and now we got to the point where we ain't got no water, Kendrick Hart told the Mississippi Free Press. It's like, wow. And I feel like it could have been something done a long time ago to prevent all this. Jackson's latest water crisis is the latest incident in a decades-long infrastructure breakdown, 
with few answers in sight for the people left boiling water and praying for a solution. The city of Jackson gets its water mainly from two water treatment plants, the 29-year-old OB Curtis water treatment plant, meant to pump out 50 million gallons of water per day, and the JH Fuel water treatment plant, which is over 100 years old and is supposed to supply 20 million gallons per day. Financial and staff constraints, coupled with equipment malfunctions, have affected Jackson's water treatment facilities operations prominently in recent years, and especially since a freeze caused a water crisis for weeks in March 2021. Primarily, the OB Curtis plant has been unreliable, with incessant disruptions leading to repeated boil water notices, indicating that the water is not fit to drink without boiling it first. Lapses at the plant have also caused low water pressure problems, depriving many residents of the ability to even flush toilets or take showers. The current acute crisis comes on the heels of a spring 2021 crisis in which back-to-back -back ice storms compromise an already fragile system, leaving the city without water for weeks. Even before the water system failures cut off access to running water for thousands on August 29th, residents had already been under a citywide boil water notice for a month due to turbidity levels that exceeded safe levels for drinking. Uh, and if you don't know, turbidity means like when the water isn't clear, that means that there's enough like particles in it that you can physically see that there's stuff in the water. This past weekend, about 18 months after the last acute crisis, the Pearl River flooded. It feeds the OB Curtis Water Treatment Center where the limited staff struggled to get the right chemical combination to treat the higher water volume properly, in addition to failed pumps. That disruption led to a decline in the water pressure level affecting everyone in the city. President Biden spoke with Jackson Mayor Chokwe A. Lumumba about the water crisis on Wednesday. They discussed emergency response efforts underway, including support from FEMA, EPA, and the Army Corps. And the president expressed his determination to provide federal support to address the immediate crisis and the longer term effort to rebuild Jackson's water infrastructure. Mississippi House Representative Ronnie Crudup Jr. lives and works in South Jackson. South Jackson is the poorest part of the city. Its locations are among the most elevated and are historically the hardest hit by low pressure problems. He told the Mississippi Free Press that the low water pressure is affecting his family, which immediately ran out of water on Monday. It's been tough, he said, my own household, I don't have water. I've got three children that all immediately went virtual for school. At a press conference on Wednesday, Mississippi Department of Health Senior Deputy Jim Craig pointed to some progress since Monday. All parties believe that the UV disinfection is currently adequate to deactivate any bacteria that might be in the water, leaving the plant with these elevated turbidity levels, he said. While the water can't be consumed without boiling, this does offer some flexibility for other sanitation needs. On Wednesday, the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency said it has successfully installed an emergency rental pump at the OB Curtis plant as a first step toward addressing the immediate concerns with the water system. 
the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency is still ramping up efforts to meet demand for bottled water to the city. Various ongoing community efforts to fill the gap continue with the city of Jackson setting up bottled and non-potable, meaning not drinkable, water distribution points across Jackson. Representative Ronnie Crudup's Jr.'s father, the New Horizon Church International Senior Pastor Ronnie Crudup Sr., said that people want the water system fixed for good. They want a solution. They recognize that this is something that the Lumumba administration itself is not totally responsible for. He's mayor, and so he has some responsibility. But this is a can that's been kicked down the road, the pastor said. And as people say, the chickens finally came home to roost. And so here we are. On Tuesday, Governor Tate Reeds asked President Joe Biden to declare a federal state of emergency. The White House granted the request within hours. Biden ordered the Federal Emergency Management Agency into the Magnolia State to help patch the immediate cause of the latest water system failure. After the declaration, the the federal government will pay for 75% of the cost of dealing with and fixing the water treatment problem for the next 90 days. Assistance may include technical assistance to review and assess the water treatment facility or help with distributing commodities or getting more resources. Bobby Johnson, a 69-year-old resident, told the Mississippi Free Press that he wondered why he needed to pay bills for water he could not drink. We have, we have to keep buying bottles of water, he said. I've been buying bottles of water now for a while. Why should I keep having to pay the water bill and I can't use my water, you know, Johnson continued. Only thing I can use my water for now is probably to shower and wash my car. Um, so yeah, very distressing story as of right now. Like it's still ongoing uh, with the water crisis. Um, I've been seeing headlines about um, thinking about privatizing the water. It's just really a terrible, terrible mess. Um, and if you'd like to know how you can help, there's an article on Vogue with different donation links. The article is called Jackson, Mississippi is facing an emergency water shortage. Here's how you can help. Uh, I would also encourage you to donate to the Mississippi Free Press. They do a really great job of doing like in-depth local journalism and they do need a lot of support. So consider um, giving them a few dollars if you can as well. Uh, Thank you for covering that story, Jasmine, and providing resources. You're always really good at that. Yeah, this is a story I was definitely aware of. It's really sad and it's it's a really good example of like the environmental justice issues in this country and how closely linked in my I, th- I think it's a good example of how closely linked environmental justice and social justice issues are in, in this country and in a lot of places in the world, right? Like it's not um I mean we're we're hearing a lot about there's a lot of climate change crises happening and I think it would be easy to assume that this is, you know, like lump this in with all the rest of the flooding that the country's facing and the forest fires and all that. But, you know, this is a, a lack of resources, a lack of people pay, you know, paying it the attention it 
it should have been having the people in charge and the people in power and the people with the resources to do something about it like they just they didn't have to pay attention to the population or it's uh yeah it was wasn't considered a priority for xyz reason and now a ton of people are suffering because of that um i had i was under a boil water watch once for like two days and it was it was really annoying. It was really, and I mean, it's more than annoying, right? It's, it's stressful. Um, but I'm, I'm laughing because it's like, uh, I, two days was terrible for me. Right. And I really just can't even imagine, um, like an indeterminate amount of time having to deal with that. Um, years like, was like 225 days of yeah oh my god water like that's ridiculous it takes a that's lot inexcusable. Yeah. yeah it takes a lot like i think it's easy to not i mean you know not having to think about the water coming out of your pipes and stuff like that you know you don't think about you know how much time it takes to uh account for that if you don't have that resource right you have to make sure you have enough bottled water for drinking for i mean if if they if it's not if it's too much you can't even shower with it like you have to figure out how to boil your water you know like it it takes a lot of time and resources like time is a resource that people don't have um water is heavy like if you don't have a car and you don't live near a center that's giving out water bottles like that's a whole other issue you have to figure out if you're not a strong person like physically um there's a lot of other things that you have to figure out when you don't have access to water um in your own living area so yeah it's bad yeah, I mean, it is definitely an example of environmental racism because mm-hmm. this is a story that's in the headlines now, but there's also, I believe, the Navano- Navajo Nation yeah. has not had consistent access to clean water or you have people having to drive out and fill up canisters and bring it back to the reservation. That's also happened in parts of Canada with the indigenous communities there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't read the part in the article because it, I definitely think if you have time, go to the Mississippi Free Press and they have an entire series that is all about this crisis. And it goes into a lot of detail for, of all of the problems and the background of what created it and also what it means for the people. Because like you're saying, you know, there's people in the article, it was mentioned that, you know, it's a mostly black city because of white flight and also the flight of middle class and upwardly mobile black people. So there's individuals that are having to travel to the mostly white suburbs in order to bathe themselves, Mm. you know, and like, think about what that means. You know, it's like all of these resources, like through Um, And they describe how it became an an all black city because like when um, desegregation became the law of the land, like a bunch of white people decided like, I'm getting out of here. And when you have those types of things happening, what happens is, you know, the people that are staying are often, you know, the people that have the least like political clout or people think it's acceptable to let them have to deal with these types of conditions. Like there's people that need dialysis and stuff. And like, that's jeopardized by this. Just, you know, water is life. Like you need water for a million different things. And, you know, you have the people with the least resources literally being hung out to dry. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, 
it's scary and it, it is a harbinger of things to come, unfortunately. You know, like I, do you ever, you know how when in the South, if it'll be like, oh, like it's an inch of snow, pray for Georgia or whatever, people will make those jokes. Like, yeah. are you familiar with that trend? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I used to, like, in my ignorance when I was a younger person or, like, a kid, because, you know, I am I grew up in a place where there's a lot of snow, it's freezing cold, and, like, you see the panic around something that, to you, you're like, that's, like, nothing, what's going on? But I think reading about this, about how, like, having these random freezes and places mm-hmm. that are not supposed to get that cold, yeah. it has horrible implications for the infrastructure because if a place isn't built to withstand it it's not built to withstand it you know you see that with some of the heat waves in europe it's like these are places that they're old as hell they were not constructed to accommodate the heat of that level Mm -hmm. so you can't it's nothing to laugh at because like the effects of that can be so like cascading and like disastrous Mm -hmm. and it's you know jackson today it can be another place tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, should we take it to our next musical break, Jasmine? Sure. So this is a, a classic song, and it is by a Jackson, Mississippi native named Dorothy Moore. And this is Misty Blue. You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We'll be right back. Such a long, long time Look like I get you off of my mind But I can't Just the thought of you Turns my whole world misty Just the mention of your name Turns the flicker to a flame Listen to me good baby Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, I am now going to share with you our world news story for the day. Uh, This story comes from a September 7th New York Times article by Vivian Wang titled China's Zero COVID Bind, No Easy Way Out Despite the Cost. From vaccines to propaganda, Beijing has prioritized politics over science, creating conditions that make it difficult for China to join other countries in adapting to life with the coronavirus. The article explains, quote, tens of millions of Chinese confined at home Schools closed, businesses in limbo, and whole cities at a standstill. 
Once again, China is locking down enormous parts of society, trying to completely eradicate COVID in a campaign that grows more anomalous by the day as the rest of the world learns to live with the coronavirus. But even as the costs of China's zero COVID strategy are mounting, Beijing faces a stark reality. It has backed itself into a corner. Three years of its uncompromising, heavy-handed approach of imposing lockdowns, quarantines, and mass testing to isolate infections have left it little room, at least in the short term, to change course. China's leader, Xi Jinping, has made clear that zero COVID is as much an ideological undertaking as a public health one. He has tied support for the policy to support for the Communist Party and hailed its execution as proof of China's edge over Western democracies. He has prioritized nationalism over the guidance of scientists. Any reversal or adjustment would seem to undercut his vision, especially ahead of a major Communist Party meeting next month, where Mr. Xi is all but assured to extend his rule. The emphasis on politics has created practical problems. Beijing has refused to approve foreign vaccines, opting instead to provide only less effective homegrown ones to its 1.4 billion people. The government has pushed propaganda depicting the virus as having devastated Western countries, feeding widespread stigma and a fear of infections even among the young and healthy. It has silenced voices seeking to offer a different approach, labeling them traitors. Buoyed by its early success at containment, the party was slow at first to encourage vaccination, leaving many older Chinese vulnerable. Since few Chinese have natural immunity from the virus, the risks of loosening controls are potentially even higher. Quote, at least 65 million Chinese are currently under some form of lockdown, according to a tally by Chinese media, including the southwestern city of Chengdu, home to 21 million people. In cities that are not battling outbreaks, quashing COVID still dictates the rhythms of daily life. Residents line up for mandatory regular testing and obsessively monitor their health codes, digital markers that dictate whether they can move freely. Uh, Many Chinese have found ways to cope, even if reluctantly. Putting in longer hours to scrape up more money, cutting back on spending. Uh, Complaints about a shortage of medical care or food often emerge, but some residents say they support the overarching goal. Who can get used to this, said Zhang Lang. Uh, a grocery store owner in the southwestern city of Guiyang, who has been under attack for three days. I'm sorry, under lockdown, not under attack. Oh, my goodness. Who's been under lockdown for three days. Uh, but there's no choice, he said. The epidemic is coming. Do you want what happened in America to happen here? Still, the question is how long China's calculus will remain in favor of the current approach. Youth unemployment is soaring. Small businesses are collapsing and overseas companies are shifting their supply chains elsewhere. A sustained slowdown would undermine the promise of economic growth long the central pillar of the party's legitimacy. Quote, the authorities in Guiyang, population 6 million, ordered a partial lockdown this week after detecting several hundred cases in recent days. In Shanghai, where one asymptomatic sorry, in Shanghai, where one asymptomatic infection was announced on Tuesday, officials opposed a one-week lockdown on a hotel where the patient had stayed and urged all residents not to leave the city during a public holiday this weekend. Because of the high political stakes, local governments are likely to err on the side of overreaction to contain outbreaks, said Chen Ji, an associate professor of public health at Yale University. Scores of city officials have been fired or otherwise punished after cases emerged in their jurisdictions. 
The party meeting on October 16th is adding to the pressure on officials. Quote, China's pursuit of zero COVID has often been single-minded, overriding all other concerns. Hospitals trying to avoid the risk of infection have turned away patients in dire need of care. Enforcers of lockdowns have uh, barged into people's homes or killed pets left behind by quarantine owners. When a 6.8 magnitude earthquake struck Luding County in uh, Sichuan province on Monday, residents in the lockdown city of Chengdu, the provincial capital, were blocked from leaving their homes even as buildings shook, according to widely circulated posts on social media. After a public outcry, Chengdu officials clarify, health officials clarified that uh, physical safety was the top priority in the case of natural disasters. The challenge for China is that its own policies have made it harder to ease restrictions. While other countries prioritize vaccinating the elderly, China made older residents among the last to be eligible, citing concerns about side effects. And it never introduced vaccine passes, perhaps sensitive to public skepticism of its own vaccines. Quote, China has refused to approve Western mRNA vaccines, though it has struggled to produce its own. Its homegrown inactivated vaccines have proved less clinically effective. Kai Jia, uh, a retired professor at the Communist Party's top academy, attributed China's inflexible approach to Mr. Xi's desire for total control. In an essay published Wednesday in Foreign Affairs, Ms. Kai, who now lives in the United States, said Mr. Xi had overruled health experts throughout the pandemic. A leader more open to influence uh, or subject to greater checks would not likely have implemented such a draconian policy or at least would have corrected course once its costs and unpopularity became evident, she wrote, in reference to this spring's lockdown in Shanghai, which led many residents to report shortages of food and medical care. But for Xi, backtracking would have been an unthinkable admission of error. And that is the world's news story for today. Um, I picked it because I think it's, I mean, it's been such a long time since um, either, you know, in the people that I'm around have had, have thought about lockdowns in that way. And there's still millions of people living with them. And it's, it's a, it's a, it was very eye-opening, I think for me, um, to remember that, you know, I'm going to make it very clear. I am not like pro authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. Um, but I will say, I do think that especially with a lot of the coverage that the times has done of the pandemic and like in the daily and a Mm -hmm. lot of the op-eds that they put out, there's this, um, way that China and the term lockdown will be used as kind of like a boogeyman mm-hmm. and in yeah. comparison to what's happening here because it is also very much a political decision to mm-hmm. do things to give people the impression that the pandemic is over when it's not to tell people like give people the impression that vaccines do certain things that they don't actually do like completely stop transmission you know because you're prioritizing people thinking and feeling like they can go back to normal. Like that is also a political decision that puts people at risk. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot going on here with like strange resources, you know, people struggling, lots of kids have been orphaned by COVID and we still don't know like what the long-term effects of having so many people be infected and reinfected are going to be. So 
Mm -hmm. I do feel for people living under any type of, whether it's Russia, China, whatever, like living under any type of like totalitarian type environment like that, for sure. But there's a lot of room between that and like letting it rip. And I think that sometimes there's media outlets that make it seem like it's one or the other. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. I think that um, there was the one part in the article where they're interviewing someone in China and I blinking on this person's name, but they're saying, you know, it sucks, but we don't want what happened in the U S to happen here. And it is interesting because the article, I think you're right. The article, um, makes it sound like, you know, the propaganda in China makes it, you know, sound like the West has been totally devastated by COVID, but it's like, millions of people have died like you know that's not nothing and the article doesn't it really is I think skewed from that point of view for sure like I agree with that person like if you haven't had that sort of death toll in your country and you don't want that to like that you know that it was unthinkable at the beginning of the pandemic I actually don't know the current death toll for COVID I'm wondering in the U.S. um wondering if I can grab that real fast, but, um, I mean, good luck finding an accurate one. Yeah, true. Oh my God. One point over a million. There's many different countries that are guilty of horrific human, human rights violations, including the United States. But it's like, there's a lot of pointing fingers and it's like, well, when you do things like play games about who can even get access to a test that will be counted, Mm -hmm. in the transmission rates or like things that the CDC has done as far as like changing what's considered to be like high level spread. Like you're just kind of, you're creating an illusion of things being like under control when they aren't like that happens Mm -hmm. in this country Mm -hmm. or like people saying like, you talk about wearing a mask and then people will start talking about a lockdown. And it's like, no, what they're doing in China is a lockdown. Right. Someone telling you that, like, we should continue to have virtual options. We should think about the disabled. Mm -hmm. Immunocompromised. Yeah. We should give everyone free masks. You know, those things. It's like there's stuff you can do, like better ventilation. You know, that's living with the virus. That's adapting to it and Mm -hmm. adapting your environment to try to mitigate how bad it is. And there are people that will take anything like that and immediately start talking to you about China. It's like, how did we get here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I agree. I mean, I think that, you know, in some, they did do a great job at when pre access to effective vaccines in the sense that it will and meant in the vast majority of people it will prevent serious illness and death like in that sense they are very effective um and up until that invention you know zero covid policy saved lots and lots of lives you know it would have saved lots and lots of lives and then i think in an ideal situation like if there weren't political factors involved from what this article is describing a transition to access to those vaccines transition into you know that that middle ground that we're talking about I think could have been a really incredible you know really great you know I mean hindsight 2020 and like an ideal you know an ideal world there wouldn't be any COVID I guess but you know I think there I think you're right I think that there's 
um, this policy was really effective at one point, and now it sounds very political. There's people in power making decisions that affect people on the ground for a variety of reasons all over the place. For sure. It's, it's like, it's, it's weird how you're seeing, well, that's a light word, but like all this Cold War shit mm-hmm. where it's like, well, we're not like China. We love freedom. So <laughs> don't wear, you don't have, we, it's all right. If, you know, all these old people die and we mess up the numbers and make it look like they didn't have COVID. Like that's like, all, that's also a political decision or like, realizing that it was a mistake to give people the impression that the vaccine stop onward transmission the decision mm-hmm. to promote that way of thinking also costs a lot of lives but then mm-hmm. it's like politically it would look bad to backtrack and so they mm-hmm. didn't you know and it's kind of like playing chess with people's lives because you don't want to seem like you're like the bad guy on the other side of the world it's just a mm-hmm. shame because it us from like working together yeah towards you know the common good of humanity it's like right i'm not like you but i'm so different it's like okay right. but what are you doing like right and the the bad guy on the other side is often made to i mean everyone's playing chess in that sense right like demonizing the other side and then trying to show how they're different but then they've backed themselves into the corner um exactly. by having to continuously prove that they're not like the enemy that they created through right. whatever propaganda and obvious there's bad actors everywhere of course and also governments use that and manipulate that yeah for sure i'm really hopeful for um i think like in cuba there's been a hopeful vaccine that would be like a nasal one that might prevent transmission. yes i remember reading about nasal ones back in i think when delta hit and we realized that the vaccines were not going to prevent transmission. Reading that nasal sprays were probably the best way to do that. That's really cool to know that they're still working on that. Yeah, I remember at one point on Twitter, someone asked, like, they were like, how long do you think, like, at the beginning of the pandemic, like, how long do you think it'll be before things are, like, back to normal? And I remember (laughs) I said, I think, like, five years. Like, Mm -hmm. I think it'll probably take that long before we get to a point where, like, there's truly a way to mitigate the spread, Mm -hmm. like, with the pharmaceutical and in combination with making changes to how we live, like how your Mm -hmm. mother was saying, whether you like it or not, sometimes shit happens in the world and it's just not the same world that it was before. Right. And we can only hope that, you know, not like it's ever would be worth the number of people's lives that have been lost. Um, that we can learn something like wearing a mask and stay where if you don't feel good, don't go, don't stay home if you can't as much as possible. Right. Like that. I, I remember pre COVID the idea that like, you know, I feel like shit, I feel sick, but I made it to work guys. Like it's something, it was like a heroic thing that yeah. you or people would have been like, Oh, suck it up. Right. Where now it's yeah. like, how about like, don't, because this isn't just, this doesn't just affect you. And demand, demands your employer pay you, demand that the government support you. Why should you be yeah. putting yourself through that? And others, putting your others in, you know, danger. Right. So I'd like to shout out Death Panel. It's one of my favorite podcasts. They have free episodes, but you can also support them on Patreon. And one of the main hosts is Beatrice Adler Bolton, I think her name is. Um, she's blind and also chronically ill. So you're, they're talking about not just COVID, but like other things related to health, 
um, environmental justice, things like that, but definitely a lot of COVID and you hear it through the lens of a young person who's disabled and also mm. immunocompromised, which mm -hmm. I think is often missing. So mm -hmm. I would encourage people to listen to that. I know it has a hell of a name. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's a great name. Yeah. So check it out. All right. Deep breaths. And we're going to close out with some good, cool, interesting news from Jasmine. Okay. So this is from Emily's favorite website, the Good News Network. Uh -huh. I'm not going to read the entire thing. I had to cut some for the sake of time, but the uh, title is Evidence of Amputation in Prehistoric Times Shows Patients Surviving for a Decade proves medical expertise existed by Andy Corbley, and this was written on September the 8th. A child that lived in Borneo 31,000 years ago had its left foot amputated and survived for up to nearly a decade. It is the oldest evidence of surgical limb amputation and predates the previous record by an astonishing 24,000 years. Those who removed the lower third of the young patient's leg must have had detailed knowledge of anatomy and muscular and vascular systems to prevent fatal blood loss and infection. Scientists hypothesize they may have had access to a natural antiseptic from the rainforest rich variety of plants. The leg bone shows a clean sloping cut made with a sharp tool. The patient was an adolescent aged 11 to 14. After the procedure, they used a crutch or perhaps even a prosthetic to negotiate a difficult environment. This unexpectedly early evidence of a successful limb amputation suggests at least some modern human foraging groups in tropical Asia had developed sophisticated medical knowledge and skills long before the Neolithic farming transition, said Dr. Tim Maloney of Griffith University, Australia. Intensive post-operative nursing and care would have been vital such as temperature regulation, regular feeding, bathing, and movement to prevent bed sores while the individual was immobile. Um, the hunter-gatherer community in which this person lived would have been relatively mobile while foraging and hunting for food, and this would have made the individual's recovery process very challenging, considering how people recover from amputations and the need for care, rest, healing, and rehabilitation. Uh, and that was Professor Charlotte Roberts, an, an archaeologist at Durham University, uh, who said that. So, yeah, like I, I liked the story um, because I think that sometimes there's a lot of um, modern arrogance and it's oftentimes like very Western centric arrogance that goes into how we think about ancient peoples and sort of assuming the worst of humanity or, you know, the things that we see like people being every man for himself or like you're weak, we have to leave you behind, that that's somehow the natural state of human beings and discoveries like the, the quote unquote discoveries like this, you know, show that people have always had the capacity to show great care, to understand their environment, use the natural environment in a way that wasn't destructive and you know we shouldn't discount that or assume that you know just because it's been quote-unquote rediscovered today that in all the course of human history that it was never known or never understood that's really interesting jasmine yeah i agree 
it's cool that science exists that people are able to like learn and understand so much from the evidence left behind too from that perspective i think it's very and i don't i don't know the exact quote but margaret mead has a statement that she made where like when people ask her what is the evidence of civilization like she was Mm -hmm. a an anthropologist and she's like people always think i'm gonna say stuff like writing systems indoor plumbing and she's like you should look for a healed femur bone because Mm -hmm. that means that you know that was someone who couldn't fend for themselves couldn't bathe themselves properly or you know couldn't run from danger but as a community the people decided it was worth it to stake behind and make sure that they were okay long enough for them to be Mm -hmm. back on their feet and you know I think that's good to keep in mind it's like we're not our worst impulses as human beings Mm-mm. and we have we never have just been that so no no that's awesome well i think that is it for today you have been listening to objection to the rule on radio free brooklyn and we, i think we have one more song from jasmine to take us out in the spirit of you know we have to support each other this is donny hathaway's cover of the holly song uh he ain't heavy he's my brother have a good week everybody have a good one With many a winding turn That leads us to who knows where Who knows where But I am strong enough to carry him. So on we go.